I when I saw your book and what you know what you're kind of uh, talking about as far as uh, tying a connection to Islamic terrorism, I got I, I got to reach out to you. And so anyway, so Chuck, that's that's where I approach things. Tell us a little bit about what you do, and um, just tell us a little about about who you are and what you do. Thank you, Ian. Um, I do. Uh, I'm a talk radio host here in Boston. Um, I'm an author of many books. Uh, my my new book, which should be out probably in about a month or so, deals with the history of assassinations in America. Wow. Uh, the uh, conspira- conspiracy theories around them. Um, it was fascinating research, by the way. I discovered that there were four plots uh, against Franklin Roosevelt when he was president, and each wow. one of them is is different and interesting and. Uh, you know, I dug into uh, murder conspiracies going all the way back to um, to Alexander Hamilton, and I bring it right up to the present time with all the rumors around the Clintons and the uh, the so-called body count. And I examined those and, and tried to see if there was any sort of a connection there. But um, as far as the, the, uh, the, the Nazi connection to Islamic terrorism, which is the book to which you reference, the... Um, it wasn't so much the Rockefellers or the, I don't really go there. Uh-huh. I simply point out that it was the, what we euphemistically call the Eastern Seaboard liberal establishment. Let's just call it that for lack of a better term. Okay. <laughs> they had a tendency going way back, and even to this day, to, on an international level, to side with the radical side in a conflict, whether it be the communists, whether it be the Nazis or whether it be the Islamists. And in the case of the Nazi connection, the, the British mandatory authorities in Palestine basically installed this guy as the head of the Arab um, peoples of Palestine, and he was a radical. And they did so over their heads. They didn't want him. Uh, they wanted to have a peaceful relationship with the Jews arriving in Palestine. The, in fact, the uh, King Faisal of Syria had signed an internationally recognized agreement with the head of the Zionist organization, that being Chaim Weizmann, recognizing the existence of a Jewish state in Palestine in exchange for respect for the Muslim minority and Muslim holy places and within modest borders, and also that this new Jewish state would work in tandem with the emerging Arab states after World War One to bring these countries into the modern era with technology, with economy, with democracy. And, and that this was the trend until the British installed this radical by the name of Hajimin al-Husseini, and he began the jihad in, in the region. He was one of the founders of the Muslim Brotherhood in 1927, he introduced suicide bombers, not against Jews or against the British, but against fellow Arabs who were not radical enough. He instigated pogroms against the Jews by using this sort of propaganda that the Jews are like, you know, killing babies and all this kind of stuff. And, and eventually, in 1937, he launched a full-scale revolt against the British authorities, at which time they expelled him. He then makes his way across the Middle East, where he sets up various cells to, uh, to take on more, more radical regimes in, in Lebanon, in Iran, eventually Iraq, where he helps a coup overthrow the British there. That was when that was crushed. He then moves on to Italy and eventually Berlin during World War II. 
uh, at that time he meets with Hitler. There were, the, the Nazis celebrated this meeting, the meeting. They put pictures of him with Hitler on the cover of their magazines. And he was hailed as the, the Arab Nazi government in exile, the head of the, uh, what would become a, uh, a pro-Nazi uh, administration in the Middle East. And that Hitler promised him that he would be uh, conquering the Middle East and that he would make this Mufti of Jerusalem, which is his title, the head of that government. While in Berlin, he sets up an authority that takes money from Jews who have been sent to the death camps, uses that money to start propaganda operations in the Middle East. Um, he visits um, the concentration camps where he urges the Nazis to send the Jews to those camps. He was very much a part of that. He goes to Serbia where he sets up and helps arrange for the training of Hanza brigades, which were Muslim Serbs, Muslim Cro um, Bosnians and, and Albanians, and uh, arranges to have them sent to uh, the Russian front and to, to try to uh, fight and eventually work their way into the Middle East. And he was involved in all sorts of uh, pro-Nazi activities throughout the war. He was very close with Himmler, a very personal friend of Eichmann's. At the end of the war, he is convicted of crimes by the Nuremberg tribunals, the uh, crimes brought by Yugoslavia. He makes his way to, to Paris dressed as a woman in a burqa. Mm. Eventually, he finds his way to Cairo, where he's hailed as a returning hero. He then foments trouble against uh, Palestine, which at that time was becoming independent as Israel, uh, by, by dropping bombs on Tel Aviv, uh, by, by setting up irregulars uh, to, to fight. And one of his uh, protégés is his nephew, that being Yasser Arafat. He, um, on, on, at the time of Israel's declaration of independence, he urges Arabs to leave and set up, uh, you know, refugee camps, promising them that they'll come back. Um, and, and then he uses those refugee camps to recruit soldiers, and he establishes this, this ring of refugee camps when, in fact, Syria and Jordan and these countries would have liked to have assimilated Arabs into their country. They needed people. These are big, vast, wealthy countries, and they needed populations. Um, in his final, he was involved with the murder of King Abdullah of Jordan after he was going to sign, when he was going to sign a peace treaty with Israel. Then his final public act was in 1962, when he attends an international conference calling for the expulsion and murder of indigenous Jews in the Middle East. Um, he dies in 1975 in Beirut. In his apartment, they found blueprints for the concentration camp, death camp he was planning on building outside of Jerusalem once the Nazis had conquered Palestine. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, as evil and as despicable as his career was, his influence, I, I argue, both in terms of the, the money flowing toward him and and the development of cells and the development of radical groups and all the connections, that, that he is really the main person responsible for the development of radical Islam today. Wow. I mean, he, uh, he radicalized Islam, and he emphasized the more radical elements of Islam, which was not necessarily the way to go. I mean, Islam could have gone another way. Mm -hmm. and, and, and we're dealing with his legacy today. Yeah, okay. So... How how does he how does he come to power initially? 
Well, he's after after having instigated a uh, a riot uh, against the Jews of Jerusalem, which was an ancient community, um, and murdering fifty people. He was then convicted in absentia by the British authorities. He fled the country, and then the new governor, Herbert Samuel, a British Jew, a liberal, one of these sort of liberal type fellows, he calls him to come home, exonerates him, and puts him in as head of the of the uh, Arab Arab uh, authority, and uh, he becomes Grand Mufti of Jerusalem at that time. Uh, so that thus he was able to achieve his position. Now, why Samuels did this, it's really no one knows. It's one of those strange mysteries. The British tended to have this policy of divide and conquer, and they tended to promote more radical elements because they saw that as a way of keeping control over their, their colonies, is, is probably the best guess anyone's had. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Um, okay, so uh, now... And then, and then explain the the connection that he had initially with with Hitler. Um, what was his what was was his motive behind that? Strictly out of was it strictly a religious one? Well, he he wanted Hitler to exterminate the Jews. Yeah, um, of Palestine. Right. Um, he w- went on the Nazi payroll in 1937. Wow. When Eichmann briefly visited Palestine, and he met with him, and he we began to uh, agitate with with Nazi and Italian money for violence against the British. That's when the British kicked him out. Eventually, he was um, as far as you know. People say, well, well, what about the fact that the Nazis were race, uh, you know, hyper, and they didn't they look down on Arabs? You know, that, that may be true to an extent, although Hitler praised him for having blue eyes and blonde hair. Huh. But you also have to remember that the Nazis were allied with the Japanese. Um, you know, they, they viewed essentially that their race would be the superior race in Europe and that other races that were of like mind would become supreme in their own regions. So, you know, he, he was certainly willing to work with people of all races outside of Europe and form these sorts of alliances and this kind of patchwork world order based upon the authoritarian socialist principles of Nazism. Uh-huh. Yeah, they, they, he would basically, they would be subordinate to, to him, in a sense, I would assume. Exactly. Exactly. And it was just another chess piece on that puzzle, um... What what did this um, is it Hajj I mean Al Hussein? Yeah, Hajj means that he made a pilgrimage to Mecca. His name was his title was Hajj. His name was Amin El Husseini. El Husseini, and um, he was called the Grand Mufti of Jerusalem, the Mufti of Jerusalem, which uh, is a religious title. Even though the people rejected his religious authority, they didn't. They said they didn't have that. Uh-huh. He was promoted by the West. He was promoted by the British initially, then eventually by Hitler, and then finally by the Soviets after the end of the war. Wow. Okay, so this is this is getting tangled for me. So the British were promoting him for what reason? I think primarily because they wanted to. Well, no one really understands why. Yeah. They, they tended to promote radicals 
against more moderate voices in the Middle East. It's a very strange story. <laughs> and I do get into this in the book. Okay. Um, and, and, you know, this is a, something that continues even to this day. I mean, Barack Obama, as president, was, in a, in a, in a de facto sense, helping the Muslim Brotherhood overthrow the government in, in Egypt. Eventually, the uh, El-Sisi, who was a moderate, got rid of the Muslim Brotherhood, and uh, Obama responded by cutting off military aid to, to Egypt. I mean, there's now evidence that he was helping ISIS and Al-Qaeda with weaponry, something that was stopped immediately by President Trump. Um, you know, that's, and I'm not singling Obama out either. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that this was a trend amongst Western leaders to, to, to support radicals. I mean, we can look at the initial support that Hitler received. We can look at the support that the, the communists, the Bolsheviks received back in the 1920s from these sort of wealthy, liberal, uh, eastern seaboard types who were, who were shipping suitcases of money over there to help Lenin. Um, you know, why is it that they were supporting the radicals? They weren't radicals themselves. Right. You know, I mean, Obama certainly enjoys all the benefits of our capitalist free system, <laughs> and probably a lot more than you and I will ever dream of enjoying. <laughs> yeah. but, but, you know, but there he is. I mean, it's like a strange uh, phenomenon that, uh, that, that really is probably more psychological than anything, but it should be researched. So there's, there's a quote that I have pegged to my Twitter feed, and it's, are you familiar with the guy named Anthony Sutton? Oh, yeah. The, so, uh, you're talking about Skull and Bones. Exactly. Yep. And he, so he says, so, you know, as I'm listening to you, and I'm like, but why are the British going to be, it's, so it reminds me of this quote, and the quote that he has and it, it really it, it gets into this Hegelian dialect from the Adam Weishaupt school um, in Ingolstadt in Germany, which I think roots to the Greek philosoph philosophies of Demosthenes. But the quote that I have says, the clash of opposites makes for progress. If you can control the opposites, you dominate the nature of the outcome would it be that mentality that the British would be supporting this guy in Israel to basically? I, I, I think I think bingo, uh, Ian. You you nailed it right on the head. It's part of the dialectical process, the thesis and the antithesis. You create these two opposite uh, ideas and then you throw them into into like a, a pit and, and have them fight like two bulldogs. And, and they both become weakened so that you can preside and eventually a new thesis comes out, a new, uh, a new development, and then you create another dialectic. So, yeah, I mean, they created... The British tended to do this as a way to... This is how a tiny country like Great Britain yeah. was able to rule the largest empire in the history of the world. I mean, they would pit various people against each other. They did it in India, which led to the division of, of Pakistan and India. You know, they've done it pretty much in every country they, they've, they've gone to. They tried to do it with the American Revolution. Uh, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's, a, it's basically a tactic, uh, uh, in their case, of strategy. But in the philosophical sense, it was an idea that was developed by the German uh, philosopher Georg Hegel, who then that was, it was picked up by Marx and others. 
as this idea of creating this new kind of a human being, this new man, by, by pitting forces against each other. And in the case of Marxism, those forces would be economic. You had the classes, you know, the, the bourgeoisie versus the proletariat. Eventually, this would be translated by, by Marxist uh, professor Franz Fanon, who wrote the book The Wretched of the Earth, to be between the races and between the regions of the world. But either way, they create these false dialectics. They, they pit people against each other with the goal of basically keeping people weak, keeping people from becoming fully conscious and aware of their own sovereign ability, their own life. Thus, we become like, like players on the stage. We're, we're caught up in the emotions of these, these categories. We come to identify with these categories. We see this going now, going on now in politics with this, this bizarre focus on race by the left. This, it's, it's like it's almost as bad as the, the white supremacists themselves. I mean, they, they think that people literally are different than each other because of race. And it's gotten so ridiculous now that, what is it, they just criticize some group because they had that picture of cotton or something? Of oh, this means that they support slavery? I mean, it's, it's become like the point where because they can't find a real dialectic, because we do have race conflict in this country, of course, sure. which they've exacerbated. Now they've put it all under a microscope. I mean, it's a sort of hyper-racist thing where they're looking for a racist gene. And I, what I would suggest is that you notice that they only do this to people who don't genuflect to the left. You know, as long as you're on the left, you're safe. But Isn't that interesting? But the tyranny of this... Yeah. And, and I think if there's one thing that President Donald Trump has accomplished, and he's accomplished a lot of things in my opinion, but the one thing is that he has burst the bubble of this political correct tyranny. He has said, no, I'm not going to bother with this. I'm going to say what I want. I'm not going to worry about these, these shrill, hysterical charges, and I'm going to be free. And I would suggest to our listeners here that uh, whether you're liberal or conservative, whether you agree with Trump or not, you should be grateful for this one accomplishment because that tyranny can come and affect anybody. You know, I mean, uh, it was none other than uh, Leon Trotsky, the head of the, the Red Army, who was called a fascist and a reactionary by, by, by Stalin, who was even further to the left. So, I mean, if you think that, that this kind of tyranny is, is only going to be used against those who you perceive as your enemies, even though we're not, then you better take a good look because this could happen to you. So we all, I hope, are on the same page in terms of popping this bubble and getting rid of this, especially in this country. We don't have a place for that. Yeah, my my big thing is um, Florida's a, even though it's a, it's yeah, it's known as that swing state, right? So it kind of it's pretty sure. pretty well divided. California tends to. I'm originally from there, and it tends to be way left um southern california a little more centralized and a little bit more to the right but you know my you know my whole thing is i i try to urge people not to pick sides i personally i don't agree with uh the party system i i don't think that uh, i don't think that a candidate should be supported just because they're aligned to one party um uh, but you know this might be interesting for a, a good opportunity actually for you to um, 
So I've added, uh, and I didn't announce it, but I'll announce it right now. I've recently added uh, a, a great mind. Uh, he's actually out of San Francisco. His name's Mark. Is Mark Shaw, and his recent book is called "The Reporter Who Knew Too Much." Uh, the Dorothy Kill uh, Kill Kill Galen, I think, is the right pronunciation story. Um, mm-hmm. I, are you familiar with that story? Yes, I am. Dorothy Kill Galen. Yeah. Yep. I I, co- I cover that in my my book, which is coming out about assassinations, um, and she's part of the uh, what I call the Kennedy body count, and they were people who, frankly, um, died under mysterious circumstances t- at a young age, who had some affiliation with the Kennedy assassination, um, that uh, that it might have been a part of a cover up. Now, I I look at this issue, I think, with a certain amount of of science and sobriety. I don't get wrapped up in you know, making wild accusations. And, and I just try to present what I, the facts as I found them and let the reader decide. But in the case of Dorothy Kilgallen, she was an aggressive reporter. Um, you know, she was also a personality. She was a TV star. And um, she got very deeply wrapped up in the Kennedy assassination investigation, um, had information that she was working on, she was writing articles. She had she had a manuscript by her bedside when she was she suddenly showed up dead, sitting upright in her bed, and uh, no one knows exactly how it happened. And the manuscript was gone. Oh wow! And she was about to release something that um, that could have really rocked the boat in terms of you know the cover up that was the Warren Commission. And uh, who knows what she had? I mean, there was a lot of things that happened. And this is exactly the proof of a conspiracy, an assassination conspiracy, when you have an extensive cover-up. I mean, some people say that there were up to 30 people who died after the Kennedy assassination who had some connection to him. I go through that list, and I really only focus on the big ones and the main, the ones that are, are really, you know, documentable. I mean, some of it is just rumor. But even then, I mean, you, you have some very troubling uh, situations with regards to people who who were killed and who might have known something. And you're taking and you you're going back to FDR as well. You you mentioned didn't you? Well, no, FDR. There were four. Uh, there were three definite conspiracies to kill Franklin Roosevelt. One of them, and the fourth one is one that I just speculate on myself. One of them, of course, he was shot at. Uh, while he was getting off a, a boat out when he was president-elect, and he was in a parade, and sitting next to him was the mayor of Chicago, Anton Cermak, who was killed. Oh, wow. Um, and, that, and that was by a, an anarchist by the name of Zengara. Um, I don't think there was any great conspiracy there. Um, it was a similar situation to the killing of President McKinley, he was part of an international radical group. He was part of certain secret societies that just wanted to, you know, create havoc. The second plot is what's called the Bankers Plot. And that was a, a group that basically they formed this thing called the Liberty Lobby, which was a very shadowy group. And they, they were unhappy with the fact that Roosevelt uh, was doing, uh, was, was, was basically going off the gold standard and was about to issue silver certificates. You know now, that. this gets into the whole banking thing. Yeah, I mean, there, there was Congress passed a law that, that basically authorized 
the issuance of silver certificates, which Roosevelt wanted to use interest-free and do an end run around the Federal Reserve. It was shortly after that law was passed, and the name of the law escapes me right now, but um, it was shortly after that that there was this, this banker's plot where General Smedley Butler was approached by some yes. people and asked to become dictator, with Roosevelt becoming like a figurehead. That that probably could have led to his death if, if that had come about, but fortunately Smedley Butler was a patriot and he told him to go jump in a lake. The third plot was a leftist plot, a Marxist plot, by which um, the communist, various communist parties planned to, they viewed Roosevelt as sort of a Kerensky-like figure, sort of a socialist that could be toppled by a communist revolution. And it was exposed by this, uh, this uh, educator from, from Michigan who was, a, was kind of a progressive, and he was, they, they tried to recruit him into this. And he decided to blow the whistle on it, and he gave congressional testimony, and it, it kind of fizzled there. And then the fourth plot is one that I conjecture over, and that is that Franklin Roosevelt, in the final weeks of his life, became aware that he had been suckered by, by Stalin. He, um, he, you know, they, that, that the Yalta thing was a betrayal, that Stalin had no intention of allowing a free election to Poland, and that he plans on occupying Germany, and, and Winston Churchill was calling and cabling him, saying, this is a disaster, we have to stand up and stop this. And, and Roosevelt became enraged, and he was starting to stand up, and he was saying, we've got you know, we to put a stop to this. And then suddenly he's dead. Now, you, know, you can document the fact that he was, first of all, the man was, was an invalid, so he couldn't really get around. He was virtually held as a prisoner in the White House by people that were living in the White House who were communists, such as uh, Laughlin Curry, his chief uh, legal aide, and, and Harry Hopkins, and possibly his wife, and several other people who were definitely at least communists, if not affiliated with the Soviet Union, and who didn't want to rock the boat at that time. They wanted to move forward with Stalin's plan. This was right at the end of the war. I think that there's a possibility that they might have, bought, might have knocked him off. Now, again, it's strictly speculation on my part, mm -hmm. but even a cursory understanding of how the communists worked and their goals and, and, and their ability to put a stop to anybody who stood in their way, especially at a time like that, I think it's not a bad speculation at all. I think it's quite reasonable. Yeah, absolutely. So, Chuck, what, what got you shifting gears back to... This um, because I, I, I still I still look at this and I just I'd never uh, never even made this connection before. What what got you? What took you down? Or I phrase this phrase this. What connected the dot for you? That Nazi Islamic connection. When when was it? And what was it? How did it come about? Well, it happened. Really, I started to research this after nine eleven. Oh boy! You know, I've I've always been interested in religions, and I've studied them intensively, going all the way back to when I was in elementary school. Um, except Islam, I never quite got to Islam for some reason, possibly because I happened to be Jewish, and I never really had a, a good feeling about what what I saw going on with with Israel. But um, I finally began to pay attention to it after 9-11. Mm -hmm. And I was like, what the heck is this about? 
how could this happen that the United States would be attacked like this? Sure. What right. could we do? Yeah. What Something did, right. that is actually still a mystery. And, and thus I began to research the subject, and I fell upon the story of this Mufti character, and I'm like, this is an interesting connection here. How could it be that the British and that, uh, you know, that, that they promoted this guy, and then he actually ends up in Berlin during the war, and he's involved with planning the Holocaust, and then he goes back and he's heading up an army against Israel? I mean, what is, why don't people know about this? I mean, this is a connection. Yeah. Um, you know, he Sorry. funneled money right even after the war from Swiss bank accounts into these radical cells in uh, the Middle East. Um, wow. And of course, after the fall of Hitler, he was sponsored by the Soviets. So it became like a communist um, development. In fact, there's connections between uh, the Mufti and his bankers in, in, in Switzerland and the communist coup d'etat and overthrow in Algeria. So, I mean... He was active right up to the very end, and he got away with it all the way up to he lived a long life, never charged. The Israelis wanted to bring charges against him, but they couldn't even find him. I mean, this is a, one of the most diabolical figures in history, and people don't know it, and I just found that to be amazing. And how did you, you literally stumbled upon it? What, what, how did, what, what was that like? What, what, what well, did you, I, I yeah. think that what happened actually was that I had a caller tell me about this. I was doing a radio show. Really? And, and, and in Israel, Israel, people know about this. I okay. mean, he's fairly known in Israel. There's been some books about him. But he's not known much outside of Israel. And so I, tried, I, I thought that a book of mine could contribute to uh, giving some context to this in the United States. And, and I think that to a certain extent it has. I mean, I've been, the book's been quoted all over the place. I've been interviewed regularly ever <laughs> since. Um, you know, so I think that, that I have contributed, I have made a contribution to educating, um, you know, my fellow Americans with regard to the nature of this radical Islamic conspiracy. And how's it, how's it primarily been received, Chuck? Um, how's it been received? I mean, my jaw's like dropped. <laughs> it's like, how's it been received? It's been received quite well by by, by fair-minded uh, radio people like yourself, Ian, I would say that it's been generally ignored by the establishment, which is expected. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. And, and I've been attacked by, by some people. There was a professor actually out in San Francisco. I don't know his name, but he attacked me in the press, and I could tell by the nature of the attack that he hadn't read the book. Uh -huh. It was almost like he just had been sent out to, this is ridiculous, you know, they found some little thing, and they, they, they attacked so, so that that that's that's it in a nutshell. But uh, you know, it's out there, and uh, I do the best I can with it. I I think I've been told that Netanyahu read the book, so that's you know, and I mean, that's it, it his, had some influence. And you're saying that that uh, oh Netanyahu, you're saying um, the name's slipping my mind. But you but the uh, is he cur is he current leader or past leader of? Palestine was the nephew of this guy. He was. He was the well. He was the Grand Mufti of of Jerusalem. That was his title, and that Arafat was his nephew, according to most sources. Arafat has the same last name, Husseini. Uh huh. And that, uh, and that, if, if not his literal nephew, certainly he was Arafat's mentor, and that uh, Arafat spoke of him at his at his funeral, and you know he has acknowledged. 
uh, in the Arab world, and especially amongst Palestinian Arabs, as the father of and the founder of the Palestinian movement. Oof. So, I mean, that's not even a controversy. That's that's something that they're quite proud of. But you, you are, and 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 I have not read the book, but 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 there are there are actual agreements, contractual agreements between he and his party and the Nazi party? I don't know if they had contractual agreements, uh-huh. but there there were pictures of him with Hitler wow. on the cover of Nazi magazines. He <laughs> met with Hitler several times. Uh, those were, the interviews were recorded in those magazines. He was hailed by the Nazi party as the head of the, the Arab Nazi government in exile. They put him into a great beautiful home in Berlin that they confiscated from a Jew. Wow. They set him up with a, um, a, a sort of an Islamic Nazi institute of, of propaganda. He uh, was paid handsomely out of the Sonder Fund, which is monies confiscated from Jews as they were sent to the death camps. And um, there's an interesting book that came out um, in the 1970s. The, the, uh, it was allegedly written by a close aide to Hitler. It's never been completely confirmed. It's called Table Talk. These reporters spent time with Hitler at dinner and recorded conversations with him. And and that Hitler praised Islam and he praised the Mufti and he was Islam is the future. He said that he wished that Muslim forces had defeated um, the the Christian forces at the Battle of of, uh, of Tours where Charles Martel turned back the tide in, this, in the 8th century. Because if, if Europe had become Islamic, then it would have been much more pure and much more militarized, and he viewed Christianity as a Judaizing influence that made Europeans, especially Germans, soft and corrupted. And um, certainly there are letters and comments from people like Himmler, who also was very close to the Mufti, basically praising Islam as a great militant faith. And, um, you know, w- when I say this, I'm pointing, the, I'm pointing out that Islam it doesn't necessarily have to be that. Uh, there is a moderate aspect to Islam. But if you take a look at isolated aspects of the Quran, particularly the second half of the Quran, when Muhammad became the literal military head of a, a nation, then, yes, it is extremely militant. It calls for world conquest. It calls for the complete subjugation of the planet under Sharia law. And it calls for jihad, which is an Islamic term for war and revolution to conquer the world. So I think what the Nazis saw, and certainly what the Mufti saw, was the creation of a new religion that would isolate those aspects of the Quran and magnify them and at the same time ignoring the more peaceful aspects. And thus they saw what, you know, something that mirrored the Nazis and mirrored the communists, which is a world order under, uh, under, a, under a law that <clears throat> would control the lives of every single person. <laughs> yeah, I'm looking, <laughs> I'm looking right now at uh, CNN, and it says North Korea races ahead with nuclear program. It seems like there's another dialect that's uh, playing out r- right before our eyes currently in 2017. Um, Chuck, yeah, sorry, have you heard of the Havara Agreement? 
No. So the H-A-A-V-A-R-A agreement was an agreement between Nazi Germany and Zionist German Jews. Right. Anyway. Oh, I think I, think I, I, think I know what you're talking about. There was, um, when, when Eichmann visited Palestine and met with the Mufti, he also met with an official of the Jewish agency. Okay. And they, yeah, they came up with some kind of an, uh, they tried to come up with an agreement. I don't know if it was ever implemented, but what it was was that um, Nazi Germany would basically let the Jews come to Palestine uh-huh. in exchange for, apparently, I think in exchange for money, essentially. And there would be this transfer agreement. Um, you know, I think that the intention of the the Palestinian Authority at that time, the Jewish Palestinian Authority, that is, uh-huh. was to try to help Jews come to Palestine and get the hell out of Germany. And they were willing to pay for that. Um, it didn't happen. And one of the reasons it didn't happen actually was because of the British, who blockaded the coast, even uh-huh. during the war, and tried to keep Jews out. So the Jews were trapped in Europe, both uh, wow. in that Hitler actually was willing to export them, but they, they were not allowed out. And there was this thing in 1940 called the Evian Conference, headed up by an American by the name of Campbell, that was going to try to look at what to do with the Jews of Europe if there was a country that would take them. There were several countries that were willing to, but the Evian Agreement said that they couldn't. And the, I don't know, it's an interesting subject. The, uh, the Prime Minister of Canada at the time, uh, Mackenzie King, was a virulent anti-Semite who didn't want any Jews allowed into Canada, which, of course, uh, you know, is, is really inexcusable because Canada is a, a huge country. They yeah. certainly could have taken some Jews. <laughs> yeah. and, and basically what happened is that they sealed the fate of the Jews of Europe. Now, that doesn't mean that they're responsible for it. The Nazis are responsible. But it was an extreme situation, even to the point where there was a ship of Jews who got out of Germany, paid their way, and were about to land in Cuba when Uh Roosevelt sent a message to Cuba saying, don't let them land, they can't go. And they actually were sent back to Germany and to their deaths. I mean, Jews were jumping off the ship and trying to swim to the shore. Uh You know, it was just a terrible chapter. I forget the name of that boat, but it was just, you know, an awful... uh, aspect, uh, an awful episode in American history that, um, that that's hard to understand, but um, that that's, you know, maybe it's again part of this sort of Eastern Seaboard liberal thing going on. I don't know what, but it's pretty ugly. So Chuck, uh, closing, uh, closing moments here, tell us a little bit about your, um, your radio show and then uh, let us know how we can tune in, uh, that sort of thing. What do you talk about? Thank you, Ian. I actually, right now, I broadcast at WMFO, which is Tufts University. And I am taking on the uh, sort of the liberal college scene over there as a, as a conservative voice. Um, I've already been attacked by, um, by the Tufts newspaper as being a, <laughs> quote, Islamophobe, unquote, and a, quote, racist, unquote. Oh, wow. um, and, and I've, uh, you know, it's pretty ugly, but... but um, I, the, the show is podcasted at, at um, iTunes under Chuck Moore Speaks. Just put my name in, you'll find it. It's available on all sorts of servers, including Google and Stitcher. 
And uh, my books are available at Amazon. My column is my weekly column is available at Newsmax. And um, that's what I'm up to. Cool. And it's uh, you. you uh, do you host your show every day? Every no, every Thursday at 10 a.m. Okay, Thursday at 10 a.m. Okay. Yep. Awesome, Chuck. Man, thanks for uh, thanks for all the work you're doing, and uh, thanks for taking your time for us today. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Ian. It's been a pleasure and an honor. Okay, man. Uh, I'll keep in touch with you. Great. Thanks. Ladies and gentlemen, Chuck Morse, author and researcher. What a wonderful opportunity to talk uh, talk some things with uh, with Chuck. And uh, this it's 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 this freedom of talk and speech and expression that makes uh, Windward Radio and. Uh, all radio, internet, or FM, AM based across the country, amazing. That's what makes uh, makes the USA a wonderful place to be, is that uh, we can look into this stuff and, and talk about it 